Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, waits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. If you want to chat with her, that's the place to go. So we do have a great chat room. Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. We do have a great chat room, and I love talking to everyone there. I learn from everyone. We all do. We learn from each other, you know. Everyone brings their own bit of wisdom to it, or they catch different parts of the show and highlight it to the rest of us in there. So anyway, do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay. Now you show videos there and if people are driving and they can't log on to the chat room uh, or if they come back and listen to the show in the archives, they can find uh, that chat room. Is that correct? Yes, they can. You know, and then sometimes we will provide orals and other information there. So yeah, if you didn't quite catch something on the air, then definitely do go check out the chat room. All right, in this week's Spotlight, I wish to draw your attention to unrealistic expectations. I've enjoyed recent opportunities to visit with some people of the younger generation about a variety of matters, ranging from apparel fashions to personal responsibility. There is one conclusion that I can absolutely forward, and that is the media largely informs their ideas and attitudes, and that definitely includes their entertainment. I suppose that's probably true for most of us. There are many unrealistic expectations among most people, however, not just our younger generation. Some of these expectations may not truly be unrealistic, and yet often they are more utopian than pragmatic in a larger picture of everything. Take, for example, the idea that education should be free. Sounds good to me. But education has never really been free. My two sons went to private school, something that cost our family approximately 12000 each per year. We were fortunate that we were able to make this choice. Not only that, all the while they were in private school, I paid property taxes dedicated to the local school district in excess of $1,000 annually. The old saying, there is no such thing as a free lunch, is as true today as ever. Now, I totally agree that our current system is way out of whack by way of the average educational ROI. When you consider that many who graduate with a bachelor's degree face these numbers, Americans owe over 1.3 trillion in student loan debt, spread out among about 44 million borrowers. In fact, the average class of 2016 graduate has $37,172 in student loan debt, up 6% from last year. The problem is obvious. Very many of these graduates end up with this debt for much longer than they might think. According to U.S. News, the standard repayment plan for federal student loans 
puts borrowers on a 10-year track to pay off their debt. But research has shown the average bachelor's degree holder takes 21 years to pay off his or her debts. Under federal income-based repayment options, remaining debt is forgiven after 20 years. Add in the fact that many of these students end up working for far less than they expect. For example, the 2016 numbers indicate that grads in communication, education, social science, and humanities earn some 40000 on average as a starting wage per year. So how realistic is it to think that college will become free in the near future? Think about a few other unrealistic expectations, such as life should be fair, everyone should like me, I deserve everything, I am entitled by virtue of who I am, opportunities will fall into my lap, people should agree with me, anger is justified and so is getting even, I deserve happiness, a good marriage should be easy, Everyone is a winner. Things will make me happy, etc., etc. I wish I could say that most of these things are realistic, but we all know the facts speak otherwise. I think it is incumbent upon each of us to feel these unrealistic perspectives and help our young people get a more informed grasp on what life truly holds for them. Now, that's not to say that we should discourage them in any way. No, to the contrary. We want to prepare them well to succeed. One of the reasons that Ravinder and I raised our boys on Intertalk is precisely that. They need that mental edge, that confidence. We also definitely want to encourage and support their ambitions and goals, but helping them to see these in the light of a realistic perspective will prove to be far more rewarding to all concerned. When they win, they will have won something of value. When they marry, they'll understand that there are good times and bad times, but together both times cement a much more endearing relationship. And when they don't quite make that goal, their disappointment will be much less devastating. As Dr. Selena C. Snow puts it, quote, unrealistic expectations are potentially damaging because they set us up and others for failure. When we or someone else naturally falls short, we draw false conclusions, feel negative feelings, and act in negative ways. Close quote. My thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? Oh, you've covered loads of different areas there, so I can't, you know, address address all of it. Um, you know, there is a balance, you know, when you talk about unrealistic expectations, there is this balance balance between dreaming high, you know, aiming high and um, working to make things better. And, you know, so so having big dreams, I think, is important for, for everybody, but um, they do need to be realistic. And, you know, you are totally correct. There's no such thing as free. You know, the fact is someone somewhere has to pay for it. Um, and that's that's just the way it goes that is real life and as soon as you understand that then you appreciate what is free because you know that someone is making it available and it becomes special as opposed to just something that you're entitled uh, to and then of course you go down through the education system and I think the education system is really really messed up Um, 
There seems to be this big push for everyone to get a degree as though that is the answer to everything. I actually have a belief of my own that um, they're actually dropping the grades in order to make it possible for more people to go get a degree as though that piece of paper makes a difference. Um, but all that's happening is kids are getting into debt and because they are working through through college and they have this huge debt, they expect everything to be hunky-dory when they come out. And I'm seeing more and more that that isn't the case. Lots of kids come out of college, they hit the real world and they have problems. I've known several people who just get depressed as they, you know, as they come through that other side. In fact, sometimes I think perhaps they'd be happier, you know, with when kids would come out of school at 18 and they would get a job and then get a relationship. And, you know, they didn't have this unreal expectation to be dashed. You know, that, that is just one of those truths about it. I think it's a business. I think the whole thing's a con. I really do. They're trying to get our kids into debt um, so they can make more money. And they, they're not thinking about the kids. They're not thinking about what's good for the country and what's the best education. It's all about squeezing the kids and their parents for money. I'm sorry. I'm jaded. But <laughs> well, that's a whole other subject. I'm not touching it. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, our show featured Timothy Pitchell, and we discussed his book, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. Krista wrote, great show with useful ideas. Victoria wrote, Pitchell is an awesome, no hyperbole, just a simple fact teacher. The book is excellent, too. CB commented, I'm excited to be able to tell people that I suffer from volitional action breakdown syndrome. <laughs> I love it, CB. Seriously, some good tips on catching one's behavior. I liked how upbeat the guest was and still articulated that he was very well versed in his research. Moving on, Mike posted this. Intertalk has great programs, which actually work. I endorse them highly. I use the programs consistently. It is so easy. My daughter said this is the easiest and best therapy she has ever done. The programs have helped her to quickly achieve a major breakthrough in her life, including a huge career change and advancement. Intertaka's technology makes a measurable difference. Try it, and you will be glad you did. Well, thanks, Mike. And Daniel wrote, thank you, Mr. Taylor, for your insight. One thing I admire about you is your obvious belief in God or is described by Napoleon Hill as infinite intelligent. Keep inspiring us all, for we are all dawning on a new era in human history. The birth pains are all around us, and it's sad that few see the signs of it. Be blessed. We'll back at you, Daniel. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show. F. Love with author Michael Bennett, M.D. Okay, the copy on this one reads this way. Quote, From the brilliant New York Times best-selling authors of the refreshingly blunt F. Feelings, this seriously irrelevant roadmap reveals the essentials to look for when you're done being suckered by the promise of true love and want self-help seeking a real, lasting relationship. Instead of helping readers find true love, also known as total, I'm having to abbreviate a lot of this, 
BS. Uh, Dr. Michael Bennett and his comedy writer daughter, Sarah, reveal the practical common sense criteria for good partnerships. Close quote. Okay, I'll tell you, both books are great reads, and we'll be talking about both F feelings and F love today. But let me tell you about our guest first. Dr. Michael I. Bennett, educated at both Harvard College and Harvard Medical School as a board-certified psychiatrist. While he's worked in every aspect of his field, from hospital administration to managed care, his major interest is his private practice as he's been running for almost 30 years. He is a distinguished fellow in the American Psychiatric Association, and he spent many years as a member of the Massachusetts Psychiatric Society, serving as president in 2004 and 2005. He's the author of The Concise Guide to Managing Behavioral Health Care Within a Managed Care Environment, a clinical read, and the two very popular books, F Feelings and F Love. And listen, if you're going to look that up, it's F asterisk C-K, Feelings, and the same with Love. With his comedy writing daughter, Sarah Bennett. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Michael Bennett. Well, thank you for having me. No, it's indeed our pleasure. I loved your books. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, But let's start this way. We like to have three things uh, on our show, and that's basically who's the messenger, what is the message, and how do we use it? So to that end, let's begin with you. Tell us about yourself and how and why you decided to co-author your two books, F-Love and F-Feelings. Well, I decided to co-author them because (laughs) my daughter gave me the opportunity and I could never have done it myself. Uh, It really came from practice. Uh, In practice, you sometimes get a feeling that you're having a significant conversation with the patient. And so often mine weren't from uh, new discoveries of how somebody felt or having a good cry. Uh, They were laughed about something that was painful and frustrating about the way uh, uh, what somebody really, really wanted out of life just couldn't happen. And then it would often, the conversation would often lead in a more constructive and creative direction once they had accepted the fact that this dearly held wish was just not going to happen. So, uh, you know, over the years, I'd had some of these, uh, you know, mentioned these conversations over dinner uh, with the family. And my younger daughter, Sarah, who's a comedy writer, um, uh, sort of picked up on them and said, oh, maybe we can put them into a blog. And, you know, there was a writer's strike in Los Angeles, so she she had nothing better to do. <laughs> so we started to write together. And uh, after a while, I thought, she thought a blog captured some of this conversation, which usually uh, centered on a confrontation with the fact that a person's feeling, just because they wanted something very badly or had very intense feelings about it, uh, it didn't matter. What mattered most was what was real. Uh, what was important, what was moral, what helped them to be decent people and make the best of things. And uh, uh, the fact that that was going to make their feelings worse very often, at least in the short run, didn't matter. What mattered more was dealing with reality and becoming a, being a decent person. So, of course, uh, in the context 
the conversation, uh, saying something confrontative about their feelings uh, was usually shocking and hopefully funny because, you know, everybody expects a shrink to ask about their feelings and, and take them very seriously and the idea that I was saying, in essence, to hell with them uh, was a very good way to begin the conversation. So that's why we took the title of the book for our blog and felt it helped center us on what these conversations were about. Okay, well, you know, that's my next question, because, I mean, both these titles are fairly provocative, you know. Uh, did you, I mean, did your publisher or anyone hesitate about um, the titles themselves? Well, it's funny you should ask. Uh, you know, we were using this title because it helped us to write the blog, but we didn't think a publisher, uh, first of all, we didn't think a publisher would take the book. And second of all, the last thing we thought a publisher would do would be to take the title. But uh, Simon & Schuster said to us, we love it. <clears throat> it was the, uh, our, our, our editor took it to her meeting with her boss, and he liked it. And uh, they said, you know, this is just keep it the way it is. And we said, terrific. Good. Thanks. <laughs> you obviously get it. I understand your wife doesn't approve, though. Well, you know, she she really does. I mean, she didn't want to see us come in for some misunderstanding or a criticism for using profanity. But she understood what we were after. And after the publisher picked up on it, I think she stopped being greatly concerned. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You know, when you... They're great books, and I think about handing one of these to maybe a 12-year-old and think, no, I think I'd get in trouble for that. All right. <laughs> Your newest book is F Love, but we'll be discussing both today, as I pointed out earlier. That said, let's start with F Feelings. The copy states that this book is the last self-help book you will ever need. Now, that kind of reminds me of the now infamous statement, uh, everything that has been or can be invented has been invented. Are you truly convinced that your book is the last word on self-help? Well, it wasn't so much that we felt we had the last word, because uh, our ideas are actually very old-fashioned, I think. One friend pointed out that it was a view very consistent with the Greek Epictetus, with Stoicism. And another friend pointed out that it was very much like Samuel Johnson, the great British uh, writer and philosopher. Um, we weren't making any claim for newness, quite the contrary. We're more saying that uh, most of the books today uh, promise things that they can't deliver and suggest that you can control and have and get things and have your dreams in ways that just aren't going to be possible, as you were saying earlier for, for education. And uh, that, that makes people feel responsible for being able to do things with their lives that they can't possibly do. If you, if, all we're saying is that if you discover through your own experience that something is truly impossible, then accepting that impossibility, which, you know, you've taken time to establish, and then going on from there can give you more pride 
Yeah, I can't give you happiness necessarily. Sometimes what you have to accept is a lot of pain. Uh, but knowing that you're doing your best with it, um, figuring out how to do your best with it, that these are the real sources of strength and self-esteem. Being a decent person and knowing that's true, even when you're, if you're depressed or in pain or poor or ill, uh, your, your illness is telling you that life is miserable for you. But if you know you're doing your best with it and you think about that, that can give you courage and strength and pride, even if it can't bring you happiness. Now, that's a very old idea, but it's very much counter to modern self-help books. So we were attacking these books <laughs> and trying to say, this is crap. Remember, yeah, there are some old truths and they're still true. And that's probably, I mean, that's the idea behind the managing aspect, is it not, doctor? Isn't that what you, I mean, managing our lives in such a way that we have realistic expectations and uh, that we don't get ourselves mired down in in unbelievable or, or false-to-fact kinds of ideas? Well, yes. I mean, we were taking the old serenity prayer. Uh, that, you know, you accept what you can't change and do the best with what you can mm -hmm. as a kind of procedure, a very good management procedure that you can follow without having to be uh, uh, brilliant or, uh, you know, discovering mysteries. You can follow it, and it will get you the best results possible. It won't necessarily bring you happiness. But it will still, it can bring you pride. And that's all we were saying. We were taking the serenity prayer as a kind of a, a management procedure. Okay. Let's contrast what we've just talked, or, or actually highlight even in some sense. Uh, you know, the book says, and this quote from it, buying a self-help book is usually the second to last Step to surrendering to a crisis of self, the last step being therapy. Now, there are many, many who would disagree with this, so flush out with us. <laughs> what, you, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I can't remember the context of, you know, uh, uh, when the self-help book, uh, suggest that you, you know, by getting better in touch with yourself or uh, by changing the nature of your, you know, what you're wishing for or by using some other technique that you're going to be able to realize your deepest dreams. Uh, usually the next step is that you, you go into therapy with the same idea in mind. And I think often encounter exactly the same frustrations and increase self-blame because, you know, you can't have what you can't have. But that if you are realistic about what you're after, then you go into therapy with different goals and have a much better chance of finding the kind of therapy you're looking for, the kind of person you're looking for, and making limited use of it because you're not using it to make yourself happy. It's more like taking a course 
you're trying to make uh, a certain kind of change and then move on. Okay, we've got a hard commercial coming up here in about 45 seconds. So this is maybe I'm looking for a yes or a no or a slight qualification. (laughs) But if I understood your text right, your books, you're basically saying that a lot of, in this context, a lot of self-help material that you get out there is not just bogus, but it actually exacerbates the problem. Uh, You go off with this illusion about, you know, how you're going to manifest this miraculous that or the other, and it is only an illusion or perhaps a delusion. Have I got that right or not, sir? Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe it works once or twice and everybody feels good, and then you keep on doing it and it creates more frustration, but even more self-blame. Right. And I love the way you delivered the information. We'll get back to that after the break. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Bennett about his books, F Feelings and F Love. They are great reads and they are, you know, you'll enjoy them not just because of the content and the meat. And it is they're very meaty books, but because of the way they're written, they're very humorous. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at guess where F fxckfeelings.com. That's fxckfeelings.com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest discussing F-Love Fact Check, Truth or BS. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there. We'll be right back after a few brief messages. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself and that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. InnerTalk has over 300 programs to choose from, ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success. From accelerated learning to relationships, from habits and addictions to spirituality. Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to innertalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. You are what you are and you ain't what you ain't 
So listen up, Buster, and listen up good. Stop wishing for bad luck and knock on wood. Dear Abby, dear Abby, my fountain pen leaks. My wife hollers at me and my kids are all freaks. Every side I get up on is the wrong side of bed. If it weren't so expensive, I'd wish I were dead. Signed, unhappy. Unhappy, unhappy, you have no complaint. You are what you are and you ain't what you ain't. So listen up, Buster, and listen up good. Stop wishing for bad luck and knocking on wood. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Michael Bennett about his books, F Feelings and F Love. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at fxckfeelings, one word, dot com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music. Music has some true significance to them. As you know by now, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas and a new avocational interest of mine. So we just played some of Dear Abby, performed by John Prine. Tell us, Dr. Bennett, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? Well, John Prine's Dear Abby has always lifted my heart. (laughs) (laughs) I always felt it was uh, a deep truth, and was laughing at the same time, and yet it's also one of the most painful truths there is. Uh, a lot of his songs do that, and it's a great song to play for patients. <laughs> you know, I never thought just, about uh, that, but yeah, that would be interesting. Do you play it you for know, your patients? These days, these days, with a laptop in hand, it's easy to pull out uh, uh, songs in a moment's notice. <laughs> yeah, it, that's and it true. Says, Look, we're all in this together. We're we're all accepting of very rough things that we can't change. And um, there's humor in it at the same time as there are tears. It speaks to a bigger truth and larger truth, that's for sure. All right, let's talk about your chapter on F, (laughs) self-esteem. What are you trying to tell your reader? I mean, there's a great deal of evidence out there. Uh, You know, I I said evidence, but I meant uh, emphasis on self-esteem, and there is some reasonable evidence to suggest that that's something we should be cultivating. So what are you trying to say? Forget it? Uh, Yes, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying that there's a lot about self-esteem that you can't control. Some people just are natural self-doubters, and if you... Uh, you know, uh, cultivating self-esteem to some degree uh, can be helpful. It's nice uh, to get a makeover or uh, to discover that you have a talent or to build your strength and discover that you're good at something. Uh, it makes for wonderful uh, TV shows, and, and it does happen to some degree in life. But sooner or later, there's some way you wish you could develop or be confident it just isn't going to happen. You're going to try hard, and it won't happen. 
And it doesn't mean that you failed. It means that through shyness or some other factor, uh, you just can't have that feeling. And that doesn't mean you should stop or take it as a big indication of failure or even overall significance if what you're trying to do or develop is important to you. And if you're achieving something good with it, you should go ahead anyway. But you should learn to measure it, not by how you feel, but by whether it's worthwhile, whether it's meaningful in other ways. Just because it makes you feel good or not is not the most important thing in the world. <laughs> Let me run an More idea by you. is whether it meets your values. <laughs> right. Let me run an idea by you, if I may, sir. I, I, many years I've you know, lectured and taught and written about uh, the idea that self-esteem is not about the things you get, your diplomas, your awards, your, you know, um, the home you own or how you look, the amount of hair you have, your beauty and so on and so forth. It's really about knowing when you put your head on the pillow at night that somehow you made a difference in making a better world of things. It seems to me that if what you've done is decide that you're going to help someone during the course of the day in some way or another, you have done that good turn, that at the end of the day, there is a reason to believe that your life matters. Is that worth any salt in your your Bible? Oh, absolutely. Although I'd limit it that you're trying, because sometimes you try to do good, especially in this business, and it gets nowhere. But if you tried, you did a reasonable job, uh, you gave it good attention, that's terrific. And then there are also those other things, when uh, you're trying to be patient with your kids, or you're you're, uh, knocking yourself up because you need to make some money for the family. These are not easy things to do, but they're important achievements. So really recognizing, especially with life being as difficult as it is, um, that when you're doing things that sometimes are humiliating or make you suffer or that don't get anywhere, that if it really fulfills your purpose in a uh, meaningful way, it's good even when it feels bad. That's all. Right. Uh, all right. Now, look, you heard the setup piece. Lots of folks out there, especially young people, think, you know, there's a problem with the world that's not fair. It should be fair. And you've got a pretty strong chapter that says, you know, F fairness. Flesh that out for us. Well, I'm saying we all have a, a great yearning for fairness, and that's a normal feeling. And occasionally, one that can be helpful when we try to be fair ourselves or within the areas that we control. Uh, We try to make things fair. But when they can't be fair or when they aren't fair, the more important thing is to return to what we're going to do with ourselves. Otherwise, it's like road rage. We can easily get locked into trying to make something fair when it can't be and forget our other promises, our other priorities, our other needs. So that in that case, fairness can be very, very dangerous thing to focus on. You think you're doing right, and really you're just caught up in something that's causing you to forget all the other important things that you can do and need to do. 
thing that ever happens in the world of politics. <clears throat> That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so in your book, you address fear-ridden people. You discuss that in a chapter called, you know, what else? F, serenity. Now, we all want serenity. So uh, is that kind of a, a takeoff from the fairness notion that, look, you know, you are who you are and you get what you get? Well, it's also saying uh, going after serenity as a feeling uh, can be self-indulgent. You've got things to do in order to be an independent person, to support yourself, to be a good partner. that involves suffering, and humiliation, and hard work, and tolerating a world where uh, things go wrong even when you do everything right. So that doesn't usually produce at least moment-to-moment serenity. Um, you know, sometimes people spend all their time uh, meditating and uh, forget all these other things that they really need to do. Uh, we like to celebrate the idea of being, uh, you know, frazzled and confused, but engaged. And as you said, at the end of the day, when you put your head on the pillow, if you really think through what your goals are, then yes, there's some serenity to be had in in knowing you've done your best. Cool. All right. You know, some listeners uh, may well be saying, now this is a psychiatrist. Uh, you know, he, he worked in, a, in an asylum. How, how much of what we read is based on your work with the insane? Well, <laughs> um, some definitely, because uh, people in, in my hospital, a good number, some of them were, you know, not so sick in the outpatient department, but some of them had suffered from repeated bouts of schizophrenia, and it really damaged their brains. And uh, they were confused, and they didn't know where their clothes were or understand you know, they'd lost their social sense of how to conduct a conversation. And yet, uh, some of them were amazing human beings. They, they still formed important relationships. They tried to help one another. Um, there was meaning in their lives uh, that they knew there was. And uh, that taught me something, that uh, you can be terribly afflicted with anything still, uh, unless you're really, really damaged, uh, create a life of meaning. Um, I was very moved by some of them, and uh, yes, they were an inspiration for this book. Very interesting. All right, let's let's turn to your newest book, Totally, F-Love, One Shrink's Sensible Advice for Finding a Lasting Relationship. Is this a book just for folks looking for a relationship? Is it helpful for people that are in a relationship? How about those people that are thinking about finding someone to, you know, give them a divorce? Well, it's really a book about the dangers of bad relationships and telling you that the worst thing you can do if you want a good relationship is to uh, drift in or be sucked into a bad relationship. It's much better to be alone and independent and have friends and uh, find meaningful work 
and wait for a good relationship rather than to um, go with where your feelings sometimes take you, at least a lot of us, uh, which is into relationships which have serious compromises and can make your life so much more miserable. Everybody says that relationships are built on attraction, you know, love at first sight, chemistry. Um, I, I think you take a different position on that in your book. Is that true? Well, we say you got to have some chemistry and some attraction. But once you have that chemistry and attraction, you have to be so careful because it can blind you. You know, the old uh, Midsummer Night's Dream play by Shakespeare. How love can be so blind. Our job is to be like matchmakers or like HR personnel, even when we're carried away by love or lust, loneliness, charisma, whatever it is, to really remember what do we want here? What are the basics? What are the red flags? We're not trying for perfection. We just want five or six or seven basic things in place so that we know we're not likely to ruin our lives. You you have a lot of people that are, you know, younger generation that have, because of devices today, lost the ability to really communicate. And they recognize that. We have had some, entertained some on this show. We've also entertained people like Rosen who specialize in, you know, the psychology of all the new devices. So we sit down uh, to have coffee and out comes the phone. It goes down. Texting starts. Instead of people talking to one another, they're texting, etc. When you When you look at what's going on today and you also look at, how you may have courted your present wife or any young lady for that matter. What message would you give these people today based on what you've learned in order to build a lasting relationship? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, Because when you're out there and you're thinking of a relationship, you're in very serious territory. So you need to pay attention. You need to be thinking hard about what you're looking for and how to get to know somebody while you're still keeping in mind your own judgment of what, you know, what what constitutes a good character. It takes attention. You need to use it to learn. You need to learn from your mistakes. You can't afford to be too distracted. So your chapter on F communication, how would that apply to, I mean, a lot of people claim to become very close as a result of Internet dating, uh, texting each other, Snapchatting, et cetera, and so forth. And uh, and yet when they're face to face, they lack the ability to transfer that information. What would you tell these people? Well, I'm more worried about the way communication can be intoxicated in itself. That when you get together and you feel a spark, it's easy to talk. That you can forget that you have judgment to apply. You know, uh, all the most dangerous characters in Jane Austen's novels are good communicators. 
you come away from a conversation with them buzzing with uh, uh, connectedness, and you forget to look carefully at how they handle uh, life and money and responsibility and previous relationships. So, yes, I'm certainly for um, uh, engaging, but if you engage with too many people, too, especially with the Internet, you get tired and burnt out. I'm trying to urge people to be selective in their engagement, but then when they think somebody is worthwhile, to engage carefully and thoughtfully. It's not just about having a good time. It's about finding out who somebody is and what their values are and how they would handle difficult situations and whether they'd really have your back and be good companions if you were in a rough situation, which, you know is what life is. Right. <laughs> you and your daughter. As Sarah I mean, says, you know, raising, as Sarah would say, raising a family is all about poop. <laughs> <laughs> you and your daughter talk about intellect. And, um, you know, the attraction intelligence seems to have, but you ca- you have cautions about that. You know, unpack that for us, would you? Well, uh, some people would say, look, uh, intellect isn't a superficial quality like uh, uh, big boobs or uh, <laughs> uh, a smooth tongue. It's, uh, you know, a good, solid quality. And uh, what we're saying about each of these qualities is, yeah, but it also has its dangers, its liabilities. It's not necessarily as good as it looks. Uh, there are particular, particular risks that go with high intelligence, your job is to be aware of those risks and not jump in and say this is automatically a good thing. It could be good. It could be difficult. Your job is to look for the red flag. And then if it's really good and solid and, uh, you know, uh, meets your your needs, uh, great. Good luck to you. Are you encouraging women to be gold diggers? I mean, you've got a you know a chapter that deals with that. Don't you know what's what's wealth got to do with uh, marriage relationships? Well, I was thinking of that as you were speaking earlier. Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> from your own life, that the purpose of life is paying tuition. Well, amen. If you're going to raise kids. It's going to be, it's going to involve a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so not so much, uh, so, you know, you're not looking for caveats. You're looking for some security and some opportunities for your family. So looking for somebody who at least won't drain your resources right off the bat. Somebody who's a hard worker. Uh, somebody who will help you establish a family and do better than you would on your own is terribly important. Uh, couples I see uh, 20 years later uh, who are uh, uh, breaking up or have real conflict because one one member is working hard and the other one isn't. And it was clear at the time they were married that this, the adorable but not hardworking 
partner was just not either didn't have the skill or the motivation or was bad with money or was very impulsive. Over a year, over years and years of striving and building a family, uh, that difference becomes a killer. It is a real red flag. So I urge people to think hard about what they're going to need in a partner. All right, one last question, sir. You break a golden rule when you encourage people that it's okay to go to bed, even if they're angry. What's that about? Well, I go further, you know. I say get used to it. It's a pain you need to bear. Because, you know, we get angry when? When we're tired. And if you're married to somebody, the thing you're angry about may be something that is good not to talk about. It's something that they're not going to change, that you've talked about before. It is what it is. And if you start talking about it now when you're tired, it's going to get worse. And then you're going to be exhausted tomorrow. So one of the important burdens you have to get used to, I think, in any marriage, is that sometimes you bite your tongue, you go to sleep. You don't sleep well because it's not easy to sleep when you're angry. But the next day, you're still better off. You've still had some sleep, and you're better able to consider whether and how uh, to open your mouth. All right. In uh, the remaining time, if you would, Dr. Bennett, please share with our audience where they can learn more about you your website, where they can get your books, and, and, you know, how they can reach out to you, contact you, if that's possible as well. Well, as, as you said, fxdkfeelings.com is, has been our uh, uh, a website and, and blog for uh, five years or so now. And uh, every now and then we still uh, try to deal with some letters and you know, answer some problems, very much like Dear Abby, uh, who I highly respect. And um, other than that, we just hope our books stir up conversation uh, for the, the latest book. We hope it helps you to be a good matchmaker for yourself and disciplined and careful and respectful whether or not you have a partner that your goal is not to find a partner. It's to find a partner only. <laughs> oh, gee, okay. <laughs> All right, yeah, sir. This was before Valentine's Day. We wanted to challenge people. We don't <laughs> um, want them to worship love for love's sake. I don't know if you got bleeped or you didn't. I don't know. <laughs> but that's good. <laughs> I, I want to thank you I for your work, Dr. Bennett. Bad. And for your willingness to share it with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week. Same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. 
For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.